Welcome everyone to the How to Write a Book podcast. In today's episode, we talk to Marsha Jacobson, who is the author of The Wrong Calamity, a memoir. She grew up in a small Midwest town, went to college in Boston, and discovered she's a city gal. Now she lives in New York City and is an author, teacher, and writing coach. What I really love about The Wrong Calamity is that it starts off you know, with a young woman who all susceptible to um, someone who is abusive um, and then how she starts to overcome that, raise her kids and escape and then start a whole new life. But even that turns out to have so many hurdles down the way. So just also a little bit of a heads up, we'll be talking a little bit about um, you know mental abuse, um, domestic abuse. So I wanted to give you that warning ahead of time. And also when we talk to Marsha Jacobson, I mean, it's such a delight. It's a really cool memoir and I'm really excited for you to dive in today. All right. Thank you so much. Let's dive in. Welcome to the How to Write a Book podcast, the show that helps you plan, write, and publish your book, even if you're a beginner or just feel like one. Now, for your host, she's written over a dozen books and helps others bring their books to life. Here she is, Maciel. Hey there, writers. Let's take a beat to talk about a special announcement. So November is your month of transformation. Get a one-hour coaching session with me by choosing one of these three options, or all three. Option one, join our Patreon for $1, which will support the show. Option two, book a $1 coaching session on coach.me. Option three, leave an Apple podcast review. Send a screenshot to my email and get a coaching spot. You can do all three and get three hours of coaching with me. Find all the links in the show notes. Act fast. This offer is only valid for November to celebrate National Novel Writing Month. Thanks. All right. And welcome back to the How to Write a Book podcast. Today, we're welcoming Marsha Jacobson. Hi, Marsha. How are you doing today? Hi, Maciel. It's so great to be with you. Oh my gosh, likewise, likewise. Um, Marsha is the author of The Wrong Calamity, a memoir. And Marsha, I have to say, um, I'm excited to read your book. Um, it sounds gripping, thrilling, and also inspiring. Um, and of course, we're going to dive into it. But a little bit about you, and then of course, I'll throw it over to you. So um, Marsha grew up in a small Midwest town, went to college in Boston, and discovered that you're a city gal, which I love that. I'm, I'm in LA, so I can totally uh, relate. Um, and now you live in New York City as an author, teacher, and writing coach. You've appeared in New York Times, The Visible Ink anthology and the flash fiction anthology for sale baby shoes never worn her memoir the wrong calamity is her debut book previously you were an executive in corporations and nonprofits and a consultant to those and today when you're not writing you can be found reading in a park or cooking something out of the ordinary in your kitchen while listening to a playlist i love that very relatable thank you so much marcia for being here thank you for having me masia so I've said a little bit about you, but I know that your memoir, you know, it's going to, it's capturing your life. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your book? I will. And um, I think the two of them are pretty intertwined. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I grew up 
in a household that um, absolutely was not abusive, terrible, you know, any any of the horrible things that can happen to young kids. But I did grow up, um, I think, with parents who maybe would have preferred not having kids or not having me as as a child. And um, by the time I went to college, um, and so so where I grew up was in a small town in Indiana, and I went to college um, in Boston. And by the time I went there, I was kind of ripe to fall, you know, under the spell of someone who would pay a lot of attention to me. And that's exactly what happened. There was an administrator at the college. Um, I did fall under his spell. Um, I ultimately agreed to marry him, even knowing that I, at the time I said yes, that um, that marriage was not good for me, but I didn't see any way out. And that really was about, you know, low self-esteem, um, not feeling like someone who deserved a lot, I think. Um, he wanted to move to Japan. I didn't want to. He said he would go with or without me. I couldn't imagine being abandoned so soon after being married. Um, and I agreed to go with him. That turned out one of the mo- to be one of the most fabulous things that could have happened to me. Um, we stayed for five years. My first child was born there. And while I was living there, a chance meeting, just a chance meeting of a guy who was the um, CEO of Mattel Toys in Southeast Asia um, led to his hiring me to do a consulting job at Mattel. And I argued with him about it. I mean, I was in my 20s at the time. And the way I met him is that I was a singer and I had just done a concert and his wife uh, had been my accompanist and I met him at a party at their house. And it was a full nine months later that he called me one morning and said, I want you to come and uh, help me out with a problem that I have here at Mattel. And I said, no, 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 you misunderstand. <laughs> I, I don't know anything about business. And our conversation at the party had had been a lovely conversation. He was telling me about his work, and I was really interested, and I kept asking questions, and anything he said to me, I had another question that I would follow up with. And um, so nine months later, when we're having this conversation, I'm like, I, I don't really know about business, and he got kind of annoyed And he said, no, you don't understand. You're a natural. And he was talking about the question. You know, he he had liked the questions I was asking. And um, I was so naive, Marcia. He he told me 
how much he was prepared to pay. I didn't know anybody made money, uh, you know, with that many digits. And I said to him, I don't know how to do anything that's worth that much money. Uh, (laughs) But anyway, I did end up taking the job. It was a big problem that he had at Mattel. Um, It was a joint venture and over a business issue, and I never knew what that business issue was, his uh, Japanese and his Western directors were so divided they wouldn't go in a room together. And he needed, he wanted me to bring them back together and able to work together again. And then he would take over on the the business issue. And um, like I said, I was in my 20s. You know, I had studied uh, psychology and uh, and I was a singer and I had taught elementary school. <laughs> so... Um, it, it, you know, it, it was, uh, I, I just followed on instinct and it, it ended up being a successful engagement. And after that, a number of his board members who in turn were executives of other companies, they hired me to, to do, you know, little engagements, all different kinds, um, at, at their places, uh, one I loved was uh, working for the International Red Cross in Japan. Um, what was going on at that time is that Western uh, manufacturers of baby formula were um, advertising and winning over Japanese women who were switching from nursing their babies to um, to formula, and because they they were being told it was better, and in fact, you know, I think people will argue with that, but I think most in the you know in the healthcare world believe that you know what nature provided is the best thing to give our children, and they wanted me to work with them on how to counteract that. Um, you know, that pressure to switch and and the other ones were, you know, working with business. So as I became more successful, unfortunately, my husband became more abusive. Um, And after five years, I insisted that we go back home. I had a two-year-old at that point. I was pregnant with another child. And um, two years later, I left that marriage chased by the police. I I grabbed my daughters and we ran away chased by the police. Um, And over time, I'm going to jump through a lot of stages here. Um, I was broke. I was on food stamps. My, My first husband was, you know, stalking me, making things very difficult. Um, through a convoluted story, I ended up at the Harvard Business School and I got my MBA there and ultimately became self-sufficient and, um, and my 
my former husband, who had just felt like such a menace looming over me, I began to realize was, you know, I had taken care of my daughters. I had um, I, I was providing for us and um, and I was standing on my own two feet and I was really feeling, you know, myself. I, I, I had found myself. Later, I had a, a, a terrific career, which weaves in and out of the uh, of my book, uh, The Wrong Calamity. And I also made an extraordinarily wonderful second marriage, uh, really a, a, a glorious marriage. And um, I was so happy. And many years later, um, he was already in his 60s. My husband, my second husband, recovered memories that he had buried in his childhood of having been terribly abused. And his PTSD overcame our marriage. Uh, we, we were both so heartbroken about it. Um, we tried so hard to stay together but we just couldn't. And the rest of the story is, you know, how I had to, I was shattered. Um, it affected my, I lost my marriage. I lost my career. I lost a lot of friendships. I, I mean, it, it was devastating. And the rest of the memoir is sort of how I regained my footing and um, found myself again, you know, um, and um, and that's the story. Yeah, that's powerful. When I was reading a description of your book, um, and it's almost exactly as you told it, you know, it's going from one thing to the next, and it's almost like from worse to worse to worse, and I was like, oh my gosh, how did Marsha pull herself out of this, you know? Um, and I, I want to ask, you know, I'm sure when you go back and you you recollect everything that's happening, you know, it can be hard for a lot of people to push through those memories, let alone write them. Right. Yeah. How did you tackle that? You know, when did you decide I'm going to write a book about this? Well, I think there's. Let me break that into two parts. Yeah. I, I think there's two questions, two threads of an answer that, that I can give you. The origin story of this book is just how it came to be is, um, I think, was not the typical one. It, you know, I didn't set out to write a memoir. In fact, I set out being adamantly against writing a memoir. Uh, I had just moved to New York City um, I, I, I had lived in Boston at that point for more than 40 years, Tokyo for five years, um, and I had just come on my own to New York City, and I was applying for um, I was applying to be in a in a playwriting workshop, which felt like a very New Yorky thing to do, and you know I had come looking for sort of bigger pond, more oxygen, you know, new 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 ways to engage with things. And I had to answer the question, write about yourself in 100 words. And um, and I found that extremely difficult. Um, 
And uh, one of the things that that happened is when I was at Harvard Business School, I had an accident that that left me with a bad back injury, and I spent um, an entire semester of of the two years I spent a quarter of, of the half of my last year um, in the hospital and unable to go to classes, and ultimately having surgery and um, and it's a it's sort of a long story, but in, in the end I graduated on time with my degree, and I had packed that into this hundred word summary, and it just didn't work. And my daughters are both very good writers, and uh, and you know one of them was reading a version of it, and when I showed her the final version, she said, "Well, it's really a shame you had to take out the Harvard story. It is so central to." Your life, but I see why you had to take it out. And I, I, you know, and I submitted this uh, hundred word, this application. But I kept thinking about what my daughter said because I didn't see that story as central to my life. I saw other things as central to my life, but she knows me so well. And I thought, boy, if she thinks that. I'm going to write about this story and, and you know, I'm going to set it, set the story straight, you know. Um, and I wanted to write a personal essay about it. Um, and I did. And then I was writing another personal essay about something else and about something else. And along the way, I decided I was committed. I was going to write a collection of personal essays. Very fortunately, I was accepted into a writer's workshop group um, run in her living room by Joyce Johnson, an author who has won so many awards. Her her memoir, Minor Characters, won um, a National Book Critics Circle Award. One of her she's won an O. Henry for fiction. Um, the New York State, the, the, the uh, Department of the State Department of the U.S. had sent her to Russia as part of an exchange of of artists, you know, trying to prevent the Cold War through personal relationships. Spoiler, it didn't prevent the Cold War, but it's quite an honor. And she was the one who just kept insisting Forget about these essays. You have to write a book. This wants to be a memoir. And finally, she and I have become friends and we laugh about this. But finally, kind of to get her to stop, I said, fine, <laughs> I'll try it. And, then, and she was right. And once I started writing the memoir, um, I didn't stop. That's, it, it was so clear. I never looked back. That's what it had to be. Your question about the emotions is a different one. By the time I was writing... With Joyce, the that part was the the part of my life that um, it involved my first marriage, which which was you know traumatic to be in, traumatic to leave. Um, it, it, it involved this you know this health emergency when I was in school. I already had enough distance from that that it, that it was not hard for me to write it um, and I was able to you know use this writing technique of, of just 
getting it all on the page and then going back and editing. And I was really I was able to be writerly about it, you know, find the word that would take the place of two sentences and would be just right. You know what didn't need to be here. I thought I had enough distance from the second part of that book, the second marriage, the losing the second marriage, you know. And I thought I had enough insight on my own path to becoming sure-footed a second time, you know, um, that I could write about it. And I discovered neither of those were true. Uh, neither of those was true. Sometimes I would be writing with tears running down my face, you know. Um, and I wrote the entire, that, that part of the book and trashed it. And I went in to write that second part of the book twice, finally on the third time. I had the distance. I had my own thoughts clarified so that I understood what the arc was and what I wanted to do with that half of the book. And that I'll bookmark that and come back at it in a second. But um and then I was able to write that part of the book and um, and really get into the writing and the editing and um, how to paint the arc and, and what was my through line. Um, now, I will say I was seven years writing that book, so this was not quick. Yeah, You can count whether it was six years because during lockdown, I just couldn't get into the zone, you know, and... Um, six years, seven years. That's how long it took me to write. I say seven. That's how long it took me to write the book. Yeah. So you, you were able to kind of blast through that first part, you know, regarding your first marriage, but the second part was a lot more like strenuous for you. I wouldn't say I blasted through. I mean, by the time I was working with Joyce, I had taken courses in memoir writing and essay writing. I had been in a number of extremely valuable writing groups, workshopping groups. So those pieces had been well edited, well, well worked. And I would say that, you know, there was three years of writing in, in that part, which is more than half of the book. It's probably about two thirds of the book, but, um, you know, it wasn't blasting through it. What happened, the second part was getting emotional distance from it and um and I don't really know like the 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 mechanism but you know why why that worked but after writing it several times and getting into the story more than one way and um at one point i realized that that i was writing that i had i had my art the, i had, i had it structured the way i wanted it it was it was where i wanted it to be and then i could start editing um and and one of the things that happened is along the way i had been giving readings um of excerpts from the book you know some public readings and um i thought that i had the book finished at one point and a woman came up to me after a reading. I, I, I don't know her. Um, I didn't know her. She came up to me and she said this remarkable, it actually still gives me goosebumps. She said, 
all the details are different, but you were telling my story. And now I have faith that I'll get through this okay. And I really do have goosebumps. Wow. And, I mean, the first part of that, like, all the details were different, but it was my story. I mean, what does any writer want but to be able to write their story and have others relate to it? And 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 this was right there. But the now I have faith part. It's I suddenly felt like I had an imperative. I don't know if moral is the right word, but moral obligation is how I I felt it to properly give voice to the often misunderstood lived experience of grief and pain um, and resilience, what it takes to, to, you know, to be resilient. And I realized that um, I had, you know, I had, um, I'd left out some things that didn't reflect beautifully on me. I had kind of pulled some punches and I had kind of a Hallmark card ending to the book. And um, and it was her comment that opened my eyes to that fact. And I realized, no, if people are going to get inspiration from this book and, and this woman clearly had, I I have to be very honest. And I went back in, and this, I would say, added a year and a half. I mean, there's a reason it took so long. Um, Because I I had to make it more clear. Um, I didn't want any reader to think, oh, you know, I can do this, and then feel, oh, that book was a sham, or, you know, she has some superpower I don't have, or, you know, anything like that, because I have no superpowers, believe me. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, that is such a powerful thing to do, is when you're writing a memoir, and actually, I, I don't think seven years is too long, I mean, I, when with, you're trying to capture, you know, decades into a short time, so it sounds like that was a really good length of time. Um, so it's important to shine light as much as you can. You know, going through the vulnerabilities, going through the transparency. And that's something that, like, I've discussed um, happens a lot in memoir, but also on the show is, you know, sometimes you're going to hit something or it's going to hit you. And you got to be open about that because that's where that grit comes from, you know, showing up to the page um, when things get hard, when things aren't so pretty. So, I mean, that's amazing that you, you recognize that and you went back. No, spacing that those items now you're I'm gonna kinda of shine light differently, you know, like you said, maybe not the hallmark ending. Did that like change the process for you in any way or your emotions toward it? No. Um no, it didn't um change the emotions for it. Because sometimes, you know, like you you you're writing and you're kind of writing on the surface. You know, you're like, okay, well, this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And then you go to the hard parts, and you're like, oh, my gosh, this is painful for me. This is hard for me to, to bring out. Um, the, now the page looks scary. 
you know, sometimes that can happen. I see. I see what I, I, I understand what you were asking. No, I think by then I had gone past that stage and um interestingly to to me it surprised me um that i i i really had to come up with it was the curating it's like i need this to be more honest i need people to I didn't sail through it. This 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 version gives the impression that I sail through it. Now, I will say that some of my, you know, beta readers, they didn't feel that way, but I knew that it was harder than I had portrayed on the page. So, now it was but I think emotionally I was I, I was ready to write. I had I had been already past that point. And so it was about the curating, what examples do I give to um, to show it? And, f- and from that, I, there were other books that I got inspirations from. And, um, you know, and once I once I saw some writer techniques that I didn't I hadn't yet had in hand, then I was able to do it. So if anybody says to me, what's the most important thing about writing? I say reading, <laughs> you know. Love that. One hundred percent read. You you mentioned something that I want to ask. So you had um some beta readers. What was that process like for you? Well, I may be fl- um throwing that term around you know, too too uh, too loosely. When I first started writing that that very first um you know the the personal essay that I wanted to to write you know which feels now like a hundred years ago <laughs> i had been uh, I had had a business career for so long and I had done an enormous amount of business writing and when I started to write that first essay, I could not lose my business voice mm-hmm. and so I went and took some courses as I think I mentioned um in personal essays and in memoirs and and finally I had just my voice my natural voice of, of you know who am I you know when I'm when I'm not being just the facts ma'am business person you know and uh, I've always stick to the facts but you know, it's a different thing um, so It was what what situations will I put in there to make it clear? You know, it just I it, it never I wasn't going to work to say no. I mean, I was really really sad and for a really really long time. I, you know, that doesn't do anything. Right. It was what particular examples, like what situation where I I was sort of coming along and and feeling better and working again and socializing again and then some zinger flies in and you know somebody says something I'm not expecting and it and I'm caught unaware you know or there were friends who tried so who wanted so much to be there for me and in the very early days I you know I would just talk their ear off about how miserable I was, you know, or, 
or or something like that. And so I, I started describing my actions. Um, I remember one. I'll give you just one example. Um, there was a there was a woman who um, had just lost her husband around the time that I had lost my second husband to divorce. But her husband had died. And they had both been very good marriages. And she was calling me all the time, way too often. And she was intent on being the most aggrieved. You know, I, I mean, she would she would be saying, well, at least your husband isn't dead. You, you know, I mean, things like that. Mm-hmm. And I said to her one um, day, I was just, this was... Oh, right, right after I, it, it had happened, you know, the divorce had happened. And I, I just was so uncharitable to her. I mean, she was a grieving widow. And I said to her, I don't think either of us wants to win that competition, <laughs> you know. And, and I ended the call. And then for the rest of the day, I was storming around, sort of screaming at her in my head. I was like, your husband isn't walking around the earth, not even giving you a thought. You can read your love letters and they still make sense. My, you know, you can still trust them, you know. And I wanted to win the contest after all, you know. And, and so just putting in tiny little episodes like that, that probably took two or three sentences, maybe five, I don't know. And... Um, but just by way of showing people it's hard and we all we can do is what we can do at at any given point. But then by mentioning a lot of those things, I also had touch points where I would be able to say, now I was smiling again. Now, you know, now someone said this to me and it didn't throw me for a loop. You know what? And I had also talked uh, along the way of, you know, getting getting out of that marriage, getting through Harvard, getting self-sufficient and whatnot. There had been a couple of obstacles I had faced, and the way I got out of them was telling twice two big lies. And um, I had left those out, and I decided that they had to go in. And... Um, and by the time I get to the the end of the book, uh, well, before the end of the book, I'm really reflecting on what was the process and and what was my roadmap and and what are my reflections and some of them were when I felt cornered. The only thing I could think of doing was lying, and but. And that happens. You know, when we feel cornered, maybe the only thing we think of doing is eating an entire box of chocolates. You know, I I mean, these things happen. And what's important is what what have we learned? What what might we help others learn, avoid having to experience on their own? And what do we do personally from now moving forward? I'm yeah. not, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get through life lying. I'm not a liar. <laughs> yeah. So. 
I think yeah, it's so important, you know, when you when you reflect like that, then you kind of look at yourself and you you're like, oh, all right, like you said, I'm not a liar. All right, so that, I had to add those in. I'm not a liar, and you know, maybe at that time it brings a whole swarm of emotions, but then you come with this new identity or a refreshed identity. Yeah, um, right, so thank, right. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, now, I definitely had one question that I wanted to ask about your book. So why is it called The Wrong Calamity? I think that's the question I get <laughs> most often. It's very catchy, you know, like, oh, the wrong side of this is, you know, but I was like, why, why is that? <laughs> right, because the immediate comeback is, is there any such thing as a right calamity, you know, and I I think there isn't. Um, readers are telling me that, as they read the book, the title became clear to them. And there is a very literal um, take on the title, which is that when my second husband started having PTSD and whatnot, he, I shouldn't say and whatnot, it's not a minor thing. It's a terrible thing, PTSD. And um Imagine that all of a sudden in your adulthood, you discover that the entire childhood you thought you had was not the childhood you had. And you you have to absorb that and and make peace with that. Um, But. I've lost my track of what we were talking about. We're talking talking about the title. I do that a lot. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Sorry. when I'm, he and I had worked together, and when we um, when we reconnected um, years after that, you know, socially, he had just lost his wife and was grieving. He was a, he was a widower, and um, when you know things started changing, his personality started changing, and and he started reacting to things. Um, in ways that, you know, weren't my sweet husband. Um, I assumed that he was, you know, that that he had had this terrible calamity in his life and it was the, the death of his wife and that we carry those things with us. And I cut, happily cut, um, a, a lot of slack, you know, for him, because I understood that as time went on, it became clear that that was a, not the calamity that we were dealing with and that this one there, I, I couldn't, we weren't going to be able to change the trajectory of where this was going. And there were other calamities as well because other Family members were drawn in and, you know, I'm not the first to say that trauma is contagious and it can go through generations. It can go from person to person. And when you think back about, you know, uh, our forebears and, and, you know, how how do people become who they are? You know, my own parents, you know, why were they not warm parents? And, and I 
I come to some insight about that, and that's there too. I mean, over time, you your, your insights get deeper and and more layered. Um, so I think it was the title is on the one hand extremely literal in that one case, but on the other hand, it, there are lots of layers of calamities there that affected a lot of people. So, yeah. And um, and one last question I was curious about this question. This you're talking about you know, generational trauma. How did your daughters handle e- the release of your book? It sounds like they're very supportive. So, and we know we're all about support here. So I just was curious, what did they think about your memoir, and how did they support you? So let me uh, yeah. So let me say that um, I, I did um, I, I did give. This memoir to my daughters to read um, before it was um, b- before I was submitting it, and I said to them, you know, let me know if there's anything in here that I've written about you, you know, that that you're uncomfortable with, and um, neither neither of them had any uh, any any changes that they asked for. Um, there's a different kind of process too when with a memoir um and i had i had already gone through it it took me a long long time even while i was writing it to ask myself how i felt about making this be public and uh, you know I, it, it's all on the page um and I'm thinking like, yes, I'm 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 ready to go public with this. Oh, wait a minute. My students, you know, my clients. I, I mean, like, you know, you, you know, it, 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 it. And and by the time I finished writing it and in part because of, you know, not just that one woman who made that comment in a reading, but, you know, people were were hearing you know, we're, we're finding inspiration in it already. I made peace with that. I, I was ready for that. Um, but, you know, there are other family members who are people out in the world and they're in their own circles. And from a writing point of view, I felt an obligation to stick to my story, not their story, not his story. Um, I had a wonderful, just magical opportunity um, to spend time with another five or six um, author, writers and the author Adam Gopnik, who, who writes a lot for The New Yorker but has published many, many books, um, at a writer's conference that I went to. I just, I drew a lucky straw and I, there were like five or six of us, you know, just sitting at a table chatting. And um, in in some of his memoirs, you know, his his kids are mentioned. And I, someone asked him, it might have been me, I don't remember, asked him, like, you know, how how do your kids feel about this? And he said, well, you know, first of all, they read it, and if there's anything they don't want, they take it out. So I had already done that, and I was really happy about to hear that. And then he said, the other thing is, I don't develop them as characters. They are very undeveloped characters. You can't tell one from the other. Uh, you know, I, I really, they, they come in and out only 
when something that you know that a, a scene that they're involved in is a it takes the plot in another direction you know only when something really matters and i had this great sense of relief from that i mean that was that was that was what i had done actually but i had not articulated it as what i was doing and when he went on and described exactly how that works it it gave me the words to say okay this is a technique and i did it and now i know how to go in and refine it so it was these goings back in as i got learnings you know that uh, that also took up some of the time. You had asked me about beta readers. I hadn't mentioned that. In the classes, we workshopped for each other. And then when I finished the classes, by then I had met writers that I was connected to and had become friendly through the classes that I was taking. And so we started meeting in person. I mean, those classes were in person. This was before pandemic. This was, you know, before we were all Zooming and you know, and um, so they, they, we became these tight-knit groups that were, you know, reading and workshopping, editing each other, you know, opining on each other's work. Um, sometimes just a comment like, I'm not feeling this, or that doesn't work for me, or this conflicts with what I was expecting. There's things like that, but sometimes more. And ultimately, over time, you know, I, we all found the people that we were net, that we were workshopping with that to us were more valuable, and we kind of walked off and worked with those people. And it was it was through one of those groups that someone told me about Joyce Johnson's group, and and you know, and that's how that whole thing happened. So. Wow. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Marsha. I know we've gone past um, our initial time, so thank you so much for sticking with me here. Everything that you've said has been really brilliant because I think a lot of uh, members here, they want to write memoirs. And so what you provided is, you know, steps that they can anticipate, things that they can do, you know, tips exactly that you've shared. So thank you for doing that. Now, where can our audience find you and find The Wrong Calamity, a memoir? The Wrong Calamity came out two days ago. <laughs> Yay! And actually, I woke up on launch date, uh, to, you know, day before yesterday. I grabbed for my phone before I even got out of bed. Don't judge. It was release day. And um, I discovered before I even got out of bed that... Um, Publishers Weekly Book Life had named it an editor's pick. What? Congratulations! Yeah, I was it's a great way to wake up. I will tell you. Um, so anyway, it's now available everywhere. At everywhere you can get books. Um, Amazon um, has had it available for a long time. Ebook, hard copy, paperback. And um, you can just go on Amazon or, or any other site that where you buy books and um, and search for the wrong calamity, and it it should pop up. And um, also, it's a it's a stripy, you know, 
multicolored cover like that, but I haven't come upon any other book labeled The Wrong Calamity. So usually it comes up at the top of the search. And any bookstore, um, you know, now you can walk in and if, if they don't have it in stock, um, they can order it. And so that's very easy. Um, Marsha Jacobson, author, maybe I would shorten that if I were doing it over again. But Marsha Jacobson, author, is where you'll find me on Instagram. Marsha Jacobson, author, is my Amazon, I'm sorry, my Facebook author page. And MarshaJacobsonAuthor.com is my website. Awesome. Oh, my gosh. So we caught you at the right time. Before all the other podcasters start rolling in, we got you here. So this is this is fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. I, I was honored when you reached out, and this has really been a pleasure. Likewise. We're looking forward to what's in the future for The Wrong Calamity, your future works. Wishing you the best. And thank you again, Marsha Jacobson, author of The Wrong Calamity, a memoir. We're super glad to have you. Thank you, Marsha. Yeah. And that's a wrap for today's episode of the How to Write a Book podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you want to keep up with me and my work, check out the website, blackheartedstudios.com. That's www.blackheartedstudios.com. And follow me on Instagram, at Maciel Writes. That's at M-A-S-S-I-E-L Writes. As a book coach and publisher, I'm passionate about helping aspiring authors bring their stories to life. So if you've been dreaming of writing a book and don't know where to start, head to my website and let's chat. You get a free 30 minutes on me. Thanks again for listening and don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks.